All right, everyone. We're going to get started, and I am going to uh, cap off this series today. And I want to encourage you. There's a lot of information that are on the uh, the graphic slides that I've included in the presentation over the last four weeks, but the, the image quality isn't very good, so it's hard to see the detail. I want to encourage you over the coming weeks and months, whenever you have time, to go back and go through these sessions because John has done a great job of superimposing the PowerPoint over the physical lectures. And so I think they'll be posted at the church website for a period of time, and uh, eventually they'll be on my YouTube channel as well. So. Uh, we're going to finish this up today. I'll leave some time at the end uh, for some Q&A if anyone has any questions, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. So I want to start, again, by doing some review. Now, remember I said that this epistle is one of five of the Jewish epistles, and these epistles are all, they all are included in the New Testament canon, and they were written to address problems that had, be had begun to to infiltrate the early church. The early church, as I mentioned before, was made up primarily of Jewish Christians. It would be late first into the second century and beyond where the church would transition to mainly Jewish believers to Gentile believers. And so these early epistles really addressed the issues that were, were rising up within the church very early on. Remember, and I'm gonna yeah, I will repeat slides because repetition is, is, uh, is very good. It's, it's very necessary for me, and I think it's necessary for all of us to constantly be reminded of the fact that God works in arcs of time. So you'll remember way back four weeks ago, or actually five weeks ago, this is where we kind of started this whole thing off, and that there is an, God reveals his plan in arcs of time. And I wanted to start with a specific arc of time that we find ourselves in, and that is called the church age. Now, if you were to look in Revelations chapter two and three, you would see these seven churches are identified, their, their, their characteristics are given about the good things that they were doing as well as the not so good things that they were doing. And remember, it is, it is, it is God Almighty who is pointing out all of these things. And so they represent literal churches of the day in Asia Minor, and they also speak to the particular kinds of churches that you would find during any time period. So for example, you would find churches today that exist that would line up with what, we, what you would read in Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus, Pergamos, Sardis, uh, so on and so forth. But it also is a chronological timeline of the movement of the church down through the dispensation of the church that is from Pentecost to the rapture. And so uh, it's important to consider this. And, and if you remember, I said at the beginning that this is in there especially for us because you wouldn't be able to see this unless you were looking back in time uh, over the course and say, yeah, that kind of lines up with what the church was doing back then. And so it's there specifically for us. And so we have these churches. We have the church at Ephesus that represents apostolic church. Then we have the Smyrna church, which represents the persecuted church. 
Then we have the Pergamos Church, which represents the Roman Empire Church and how it began to immediately uh, become a, a, uh, a religion of the state. And then you have Thyatira, the Holy Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church, Sardis, the Reformation Church, Philadelphia, the great missionary church of the 16 to, the, to 1900, and finally, the Church of Laodicea, which is represented as the apostate church, uh, and we find ourselves living at this time. We are in the age of Laodicea. Then what I sought to do was, was show this to you, show you this arc of time, the church age, within the broader context of God's plan here that's spelled out in Christian, and so it's in, uh, in the scriptures. It's important to remember that up until the time of the giving of the law of Mount Sinai, of the, the Jews being, being freed from bondage in Egypt and taken into the wilderness, the giving of the Mount on Mount Sinai, God dealt with humanity as a whole. And so we see, you know, in the, in the previous dispensations, uh, the, the dispensation of innocence, human conscience, human government, that God was dealing with humanity as a whole. He was dealing with them directly. But from the giving of the law, God now restricts his dealing with the world focused through one people, and that would be the people of Israel. And so it is here that we see this, this broadest expanse of the arc of time. And in the scripture, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And then there is, you know, this, these uh, sub-arcs, and this one here called the Age of the Gentiles. And so that would be, uh, that, would be that time period as a, as a response to them breaking the terms of the covenant given on Mount Sinai, that they would be placed under Gentile domination for X amount of years and that that plan would work itself out over a period of 77s or 490 years. And so that last period there, that last period of seven, that we still await the arrival of that, that is what we know as the tribulation period of seven years. And so here is where we plug into this in the church age. So we're sort of a parenthetical in all of this. Well, what I want you to notice about this slide is that you see is, and keep this in your mind, is because in this arc of time, this is where we are right here. We're right at the end of this arc of time. And then, so what we do and how we pay attention to, to doctrine, how we pay attention to theology is very, very important. And it's important for several reasons. Um, so 1991 years, we're 1991 years into, into this part of, of God's plan for the, the restoration of the nation of Israel and for the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom. But it's important because there is this question mark here. There is this period here, this interval between the rapture of the church and the onset of that seven-year tribulation period where there is no concerted evangelistic program taking place on planet Earth. And so after the church's removal from the Earth, the next evangelists come on the scene will be the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and the two witnesses who begin their ministry right at the onset of the seven-year tribulation period. 
So how we pay attention to doctrine and theology is very important. It's important for you. It's important for your children and your grandchildren. And it's important for, for these who will come after us to have some sort of testimony. But we want that testimony to be accurate. And so this is, it's very important. And I'm, this is like, I'm saying, well, this is like probably like the third or fourth time I've showed them this slide. But it's important, I said, I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll do it even once more before the end of the presentation today, because it's critical that we keep this in our thinking as we pay attention to the things that we're called to pay attention to. So the scripture has warned us uh, throughout, throughout all of its pages that at the time of the end, the battle would intensify exponentially. There's a real battle going on for, for control of the truth, for control of of the scriptures for control of the minds and hearts of your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And if you don't see that happening, I'm not sure what planet you're living on. But if you want to know how intense this battle is, you need only talk to someone who may be involved in, in education in some way. That there's a real battle, and this battle has really been going on since the 1960s and the 1970s. I remember reading a book that was, that was written by a woman named Madeline Ferguson. It was written in the mid-1970s. It was published by Houghton Mifflin, which is one of the largest publishers of school textbooks in the country. And the name of the book was The Aquarian Conspiracy. And the book was all about a, a bringing in a methodology that could be used to train children to be world citizens, okay? And so this is not a new plan. So the scriptures tell us that at the time of the end, this is, it's not going to abate, it's not going to slow down, it's only going to speed up and intensify. And that the grace changers in the church would appear to have gained the upper hand. Now, I use the term grace changers here, and the way it's it's defined in the book of Jude is that men would come in the church and they would begin to take that grace and convert it into licentiousness, not only in their own lives, but in the lives of, of the true believers who are in the church. And I think if we, if we all would reflect on ourselves, we would see that to a certain, uh, even in a, at a personal level, that there is a certain degree of what they have been able to accomplish that has been effectual, even in our lives, that when we look at things that we do, when we look at things and behaviors that we tolerate, that we try and, uh, that we try and excuse in our own lives, we would see that, they are, that, that they're inconsistent with what we have given to us in the scriptures. And so that happens because these grace changers have a way of being able to exert their influence, not only at the church level, but at the individual level, too, as we come into contact with them at an individual level. And so it would appear that they've gained the victory, but, you know, and we go back and we remember that God is sovereign, and so this is part of his, of his plan. Overall, he's in control of all of this. And he's using these grace changers to exercise us, to purify us, right? How do you, 
how do you make a person stronger? You make a person stronger by putting them under strain, by putting them under duress, and so they become stronger. So this is all part of God's plan. And so God's plan is to, is to make us stronger and at the same time make us wise to be able to discern between that which is true and that which is false. So what we've covered so far has been that these false teachers are forever stirring up discontent within the congregation. They tell us we are missing something that God has for us. And where you find this most prevalent now is in the, is in the Pentecostal charismatic movement. They're, 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 they've given over to all of these practices that <laughs> because I'm familiar with the occult, because I was at one time involved with the occult, I'm familiar with the practices, and many of these practices are straight out of the, uh, out of the occult playbook. And I, I showed a video clip to my daughter-in-law while we were on vacation last week at, at uh, the, uh, the commissioning service of uh, Todd Bentley, where there was this woman there who, was put, who put herself into a trance and supposedly was prophesying, and I'm sure she was, but it wasn't from the right side of heaven, but the left side of heaven. And so these kinds of practices are infiltrating the church with there's something more uh, to be learned. The scriptures don't give us all we need. And so the untrained mind begins to consider their words while forgetting what scripture says. And the scripture says that everything that we need, everything that's needed for godliness and 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 being pleasing to God and, and all of those things has been provided to us as a result of Christ's atonement has been provided to us in the Holy Scriptures. And so their impact, their impact in the church is they come in or they rise up, they ridicule and disparage what the church and her leaders are trying to do, they come in or rise up to assert their own agenda which has at its base their prime directive of feeding themselves rather than feeding the flock. Pay attention to this. As, as the days, weeks, and years tick by, this is a red flag. A red flag is that the sheep come in, uh, the sheep come in to, uh, to not only be fed, but to feed. You know, you've heard, you've heard the statements probably a countless times in your walk with Christ, I'm not being fed at this church. You know, and that's, you know, Pastor Roman was talking about the things that irk him as a pastor. That was always a big one for me uh, because people don't realize that in feeding others, you yourself are fed. You yourself receive feeding. Well, these guys, they come in and then they're not looking to feed the flock. They're looking, they're looking to use the, the flock as a food source. Right? So they come in and they see you as an easy mark. You're just a gullible Bible thumper. And they're going to come in here and they're gonna, they're, they'll play to you. They'll get you to give them your money. They'll get you to give them your trust and all of that. And, they'll, and they will use you up and then they will cast you aside when they can't get anything more out of you. And truth be known, how many people have we seen float through this church like that? We don't like to admit it, do we? But that's the cold, hard reality that we've experienced if you've been associated with this church for any number of years. We've seen it several times. 
And we don't like to think these thoughts because we like to think the best of everybody. But the reality is the scripture spells out that these people are going to be here. Okay. So they seek to change the course and direction of the course the church is traveling. And they rock the church with scandal after scandal. And when they've done their work, they just move on to the next place. And in the end, what is their work? To discourage the flock, to discourage the leadership, uh, and thus cause a course change. You see, if you can, if you can discourage the leadership, uh, if you can distract the leadership, eventually it's going to result in a course deviation, and a course deviation is just that. It's a course change. And in the end, uh, and thus they make shipwreck of the faith of some. And many times they even make shipwreck the vision of a church. So this is what they do. This is what they go. Okay, so in the final session today, I want to give you, according to Jude, some red flags, some things that you should look for. Be on guard. When you see these things happening in your interaction with individuals, let this be in your mind. This, I'm not saying it is definitively a red flag, but it is something that should raise your spiritual awareness that it's quite possible I might be dealing with one of these individuals. And then Jude closes it off with how we should respond in the face of this. So moving into the 10th triad now, we read in Jude 1.16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So in this triad, we are told that they are grumblers and murmurs. And what is grumbling and a murmurer? It's a soft, indistinct, indistinct sound made by a person or group of people speaking quietly at a distance. And so it's this little chatter that's taking place, you know, away from the individual or whatever it is that's being grumbled about. And so we see that the Pharisees, we see this in the scriptures, that the Pharisees, they grumbled in the presence of Jesus. We read in John 6:41, where the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread uh, which came down from heaven. And so these men, they claimed to be teachers of God, and yes, they were mumbling and grumbling against the true teachers. And then, of course, we, we have countless examples in the Old Testament of where the Israelites murmured against God, they murmured against Moses as they were walking through the wilderness. And, and, and this is a uniquely Jewish insult. Because a Jew receives this as someone uh, who does not have faith in God and in God's word. And so these are clearly identified to this Jewish audience as individuals who engage in this behavior and that this behavior is an indication that they do not have true faith in God and in God's word. Okay, so they are grumblers or mumblers. They are complainers, it says. That is, they are fault finders who complain about their situation. Specifically, they complain about not being free to pursue their own lusts and their own desires. They find fault and complain about teachers who challenge either or both their teaching and their lifestyle. They're like children who complain about rules they don't like. They always seem to find a reason for being critical of leadership 
and the direction or doctrine of the church. So these are two red flags now that you should implant in your mind. When you encounter these individuals or if you encounter this individual who you notice has a tendency to grumble or to murmur against something that the leadership of the church is, is, is trying to do or something that's going on, that is a potential red flag. Now that's not saying definitively that that individual is, is one of these grace changers, one of these false teachers, but it should alert you to the possibility that that may be the case. And so how should you respond? You, how should you respond to an individual that you notice over the course of time, here's where we can get interactive for a bit, that an individual is, is they seem to be always grumbling or complaining against either a situation in their life or something that they see happening in the church that they believe should not be happening or something, something not happening in the church that they, should believe, that they believe should be happening. How do you think, what would be the best way for you to deal with an individual like that? Now mind you, if you're seeing this, I wouldn't recommend you right off the bat going up to Pastor Roman and saying so-and-so is a grumbler and a murmurer, right? Don't do that. There's a, scriptural, there's a scriptural progress that we are to utilize in that case, right? And so how would you do that? Right, exa that's exactly right. And so countless times I said, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but you're saying it to the wrong person. Why don't you go and have a sit down with so-and-so and talk about that, right? And, and you, can, you can gauge a lot, you'll learn some things by what their response is to such a, to such a thing, right? So that in and of itself is instructive. So, but your red flag should come up and say, okay, I may be dealing with one of these, Probably it's just someone who's not having a good day, so on and so forth. But your red flags should come up because these people are here. They're all around us. Okay, so we have grumbling or murmuring. We have complaining. And then we have arrogant speaking, which literally means excessive weight or size. They speak in excessive ways. Now, this is, this is really important that you get this. Get, if you don't get anything else, if you don't get the grumbling or the, the complaining, get this. Because this is what I've seen operate the most efficiently among the people of God. And it always ends in division. So pay attention here. This is done to flatter people in the church to gain an advantage. The flattery is a device which is used to gain the trust and attraction of others within the church. And once that has taken place, they now begin to subtly manipulate others to their position by discrediting those they are secretly opposing. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand that? So this type of thing, this arrogant speaking is a lie at two levels at least. Number one, if they're flattering you, they're lying to you, right? They're not flattering you because they think you're gregarious or 
spiritual or attractive. They're flattering you because they're trying to win you to their side so that they can then manipulate you to follow their agenda. So that's a lie. And then usually those who engage in this kind of behavior are given to slander and gossip. So these are three warning signs that you should be wa watch out for. You should watch out for those who are murmurers. You see, they're in the corners, they're in the shadows, and the little chatter begins and it continues. That's a red flag, watch out for that. Uh, complaining, that's another red flag. And all of a sudden someone is flattering you. This is the one that we're, I think we're most sub you know, subject to because I mean, let's face it, who doesn't like to be complimented, right? Uh, and so they use this as a tool. They don't mean what they say, it's just a tool they use to manipulate you. And, and usually it ends in slander or gossip. Okay, now just to quote a quote from Stephen Armstrong at this point, he says this, now at this point in his letter, Jude has described these men in multiple levels of detail. The church is aware of their presence, their nature, their methods, their motivations, and their fate. The church no longer has any excuse for defending themselves and removing the false teacher's influence. The question is whether they will have the courage to do so. Some will, but others will waver and may not have the spiritual maturity to see things as they truly are. We see that problem in the church today. While some Christians are wise enough to recognize the false teachers on TV and in our local, local churches, others are taken in by their smooth words. Moving on to the 11th triad, Jude's final appeal. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Okay, so right off the top, he says this about these individuals. Here's another triad. They are completely driven by the lusts of the flesh. They are totally devoid of the Spirit of God. They do not have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. They have not been made spiritually alive by the Spirit of God. So they are completely driven by the desires of the flesh. And they are out to cause divisions within the body. That's what they're out to do. You know, you can, uh, you, you know, not everyone who does the devil's work does the devil's work consciously. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you can be doing the devil's work while not saying, ha, ha, I'm going to get up today and do the devil's work, right? So either, either, either God is your boss or the devil is your boss. There's no in-between there. You are either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. And if, say, if you are a child of Satan, then he is your master and you do his bidding, period. End of story. The reality is, is, is most people who are children of the devil have no idea that they are serving the agenda of the devil. And so it's quite possible that these individuals can come into your church, can come into our churches, and, and come being programmed to do nothing else but cause division in the body 
yet think all the while that they're actually coming in to do God's business, you see? The reality is, is they're unbelievers. But there's something here that is, is specifically being pointed out to the church of our time. Now, you'll remember that I said in the beginning that there are certain places in the Bible where you get just the briefest outline of, of the sequence of events. One of those places is in the book of Revelation, you remember. I said that in the beginning because the, the writer of the book of Revelation, ultimately we know it's God, uh, assumes that we have done our homework and are familiar with the rest of the Bible, right? So when we see, for example, in Revelations chapter 13 and 14, the beast with seven heads and 10 crowns, well, we, it doesn't have to say a lot about that because we know that that's pointing us back to Daniel chapter, the book of Daniel. So Jude is kind of doing the same thing here. What he's doing here is he's now assuming that, that the Jewish, his Jewish audience, and under this inspiration of God, we, living in the Laodicean church age, are familiar with what Peter has already previously said about the subject. Now you remember I said at the beginning that Jude quotes from Peter 13 times. And this is where he quotes, but he leaves something out, assuming that we're familiar with what Peter says on the subject in 2 Peter 3, 1 and following. He says, Beloved, I now write to you in the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, okay? Uh, walking according to their own lusts. And so here we have, it's roughly parallel now to the Jude quote, but notice the Peter quote says this. Now he gets real specific. What is it that they will be scoffing about? Saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so both Jude and Peter here are speaking specifically of mockers and scoffers who would come in the last days. And I think I've already demonstrated to you from scripture that we are indeed in the last days. And so this warning now is specifically to us who are living at, in, at the end period of the last days. So he's speaking of mockers that would come in the last days, and the term last days refers to the last period of our age. Therefore, both Jude and Peter were speaking of a future day when false teachers would come mocking the prospect of Christ's return. While these false teachers work in similar ways throughout all periods, the Christians of Jude's day were still expecting that his soon return was just around the corner. You see that reflected in several of the epistles in the New Testament. But as time stretches forward, they would begin to cast doubt on Christ's return. And that time is really now, the future has arrived. And so we see this now 
become a, becoming prevalent in our church in our time as we look at all of the different eschatological views and theories that are out there and prevalent in the church today. Most of them would deny the soon return of Christ in one way or another. So here it is, and this is the last time I'm going to show you this slide, but I, I hope you have nightmares about it. Here we are. We're right at the end here, right? In the last days, right there. So what Jude and Peter are warning us about there in those epistles is talking about the time in which we are living. And this is a slide from week one where uh, the New Testament is quite clear in these passages that the time of the church itself falls, falls within the time period of the last days and we are at the end stage of the last days just prior to the return of Christ. There's nothing else that needs to happen from a prophetic standpoint in order for Christ to return for his church. So this is important that we understand this. Okay, so what is our response? So I've given you the red flags. Someone give me one of them. Give me one of the red flags that Jude has talked about in the last few verses. Richard? Murmuring. Give me another one. Complaining. Give me a third one. John? Arrogant speaking. Doug? Mockers? And denying the soon return of Christ, right? So there are some red flags there. So what is our response to be? Well, the response comes now in the 12th triad beginning in Jude 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So building yourselves up, this is a continuous action on our most holy faith. So the emphasis is on the continuous study of God's word and the doctrine and theology of our faith. This is the only thing that differentiates us from everything else that's going on in the world today. You know, moral and ethics is, is not what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. There are good Buddhists. There are moral and ethical Buddhists. Truth be known, there are probably moral and ethical Satanists. That's not what differentiates us from them. What differentiates us from them is our doctrine and our theology. And so that is something that you all, we all need to be familiar with. Okay, so building yourselves up on your most holy faith. It's a continuous action. And, you know, weeks ago, um, you know, I, I, I suggested that you use the you know, the doctrinal statement of the church as, a, as a, a study guide to help take you through, you know, the, the predominant doctrines of the scripture. And, and further suggested that maybe if you get to the point where you understand it enough to translate it into the language of your child, however old they may be, then you're getting a good grasp on that. Well, you know what? I got to experience a couple days of that down the Cape. 
You know, all of a sudden, Mark handed me the doctrinal statement and said, okay, explain this to Mia, Landon, and Sophia. And so imagine, imagine dealing with the doctrine of angels and the covering cherub and the fall of Satan. Not so easy to do. You know, it forces you to think through it. And so it's a, it's a good way to do it. But this isn't optional for you. I promise you, if you are a person who is loaded for right brain thinking, which is emotional, the emotional feely side, then you are going to be suckered by one of these guys. The only immunization that you have against it is to become familiar with the objective teaching of the Holy Scriptures. That's it. So building yourselves up on your most holy faith, the emphasis on is on the continuous study and growth in the doctrine and theology of our faith that is presented to us in the Holy Scriptures and relying on the three persons of the Godhead, praying in the Spirit, seeking the counsel of the Holy Spirit, seeking Him out, prayer, keeping yourselves in the love of God, that is, God's love for us should be reflected in everything that we do, in the way that we conduct ourselves, you know, when we're, when we're at work, when we're at home, you know, when the guy cuts us, cuts us off, and, you know, we would like nothing better than to flash him the fickle finger of fate, right? But we, we don't do it. We're, you know, we're supposed to reflect the love of Christ in everything that we do. And we're to wait for the mercy of Christ at his return. This is the hardest thing for me. And that is to live with my sights fixed on eternity. And so it's so easy for me to get caught up in the, in the things of everyday life in making long-range plans. You know, and I was, I was thinking about this today, you know, where, you know, I'm making plans for five, ten years from now, and then, you know, my mind flashes to what James says in his epistle. I think it's James chapter 4, James chapter 5. You know, where he says, you know what, don't make long-range plans because <laughs> what is your life? It's a vapor, it's a whiff of smoke. And he says the proper response is this we will do if, if the Lord, if, it, if it's the Lord's will that we live and do such and such a thing. And I thought about it, I said, wait a minute. I said, you know, when I have read those verses throughout all my life and said, if it's the Lord's will that I would be able to do this thing, that I will do it. But that's actually not what the passage says. The passage says if, if God will allow me to live even one more day, and then, you know, maybe he will allow me to do that. And so we have no guarantee for, we have no guarantee for tomorrow. And so we make our long-range plans and, and with me, it becomes so easy for me to drift off into the rumble strip. Does everyone here know what a rumble strip is? You know, they're on the sides of the highways. And has anyone ever just, you've, wow, you're on the rumble strip, right? And that happens to me so easily to, to remember that everything that's going on in this life, everything that's happening, all of the, you know, the, the headlines that are grabbing our attention, it's all going away. It's got to go this way because it's all going away. And so 
And so for you, for me, the important thing is having our eyes fixed on eternity. And, and fixing our eyes on eternity, we fix our eyes on those things that will last eternally. And what does it say in the scriptures? It says that, that uh, you know, all of the desires of the flesh and all of the pride of life, there are all these things that are passing away and the world itself is passing away, but the word of God endures forever. And so all of these things that we've been talking about over the last four sessions about being astute enough, caring enough about your children, caring enough about your grandchildren, caring enough about those who will, who will come after us, who are going to have to endure all of the, the tortures and pain of the tribulation, caring enough about them that you would be willing to have eyes for eternity now in doing the very best that you can to learn the word of God for yourself and its teachings so that you might be able to accurately pass them on and equip those who will come after us with the truth to endure the things that they will endure. So our response comes in the 13th triad, strengthening others. In verse 22 it says, on some have compassion, making a distinction. Now this is, you know, this is an interesting term here. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And so the first part here speaks to immature or negligent believers. I use the term negligent because immature believers, there's no excuse for a person being a Christian for any length of years and being immature in their faith. The only reason for that is negligence in growing in the faith. But there indeed are immature and negligent believers and they are especially susceptible to having doubts about what is true or false. They are always the most vulnerable. To this group, we are to show patience and mercy. Mercy means being understanding of their doubting while continuing to teach the truth, expose the lies, allowing time for them to mature. So we will encounter these true believers. And then there is the second part of this distinction where it says reading again and on some have compassion making a distinction for some believers the deception has been too strong for them to resist and they have fallen for false teachers and they have fallen for false teaching these are believers who need to be saved now I'm not using the word saved here in the sense of saved from eternal condemnation but they need to be rescued from the false system of teaching that they've been that they've been taken in by. This is a very difficult task. If you've any ever had to engage in this kind of dialogue with a believer who's who's fallen under a false system or or wrong doctrine, this is a very difficult task, but it one that you need to engage nevertheless. It's the equivalent of throwing them a life preserver. And then there is the third group that's spoken of here. Uh, that group in verse 23, where Jude says, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This group has been so consumed by false teachers 
and false teachings that they are now beginning to repeat it to others. They are not false teachers. These are still true believers. They are not false teachers, and so they deserve our mercy as well. The fear refers to maintaining a distance from them, lest you be overrun with what has overrun them. We must do our best to pull them out of that fire, but the reality is, is that we will have little chance for success. If you've ever encountered one of these and you've tried to get them to move away from the system that they've been bewitched from, it's a very difficult task and you have very little chance for success. Hence the need for distance, maintaining a distance, a sober view of the dangers. And one more quote from Stephen Armstrong. So Jude says the church has to fight against the false teachers in the church in three principal ways. First, we strengthen ourselves in the daily disciplines of the faith, relying on God in his power. Secondly, we work to help our brothers and sisters resist the enemy's schemes. Finally, we protect the flock by isolating those who have fallen for their lies, limiting their ability to damage other saints in the church. And to close off the epistle, Jude's 14th triad, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, amen. And so in this third triad, Jude, his confidence in us, his confidence in our ability to overcome is rooted in his confidence to God who has existed before all time. He exists in the present now and he will exist in the future forevermore. Amen.